Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. This morning we're going to begin a series uh, in the book of Daniel, which is an incredible Old Testament book. And I've entitled our message, Standing Out in a Fit-In World. Many of you Canadians are experts in American history. You tend to get more American history than Americans, so good for you on that. Good for your school systems on that. Ron Hutchcraft is talking about something that took place during the Civil War era down south of the border. He went to uh, Fort Sumter, which was, a, which was a port city in Charleston, South Carolina. So this is sort of Civil War Central in the 1860s. And he says, as the tour boat approached Fort Sumter, I wondered whether the guides would be dressed in blue, representing the North, who occupied that for much of the war, or in gray. The South had taken over that port at times. Sumter had been a Union fort in Confederate territory when the Civil War began, and it had changed hands several times. He says, we were greeted at the gate by a soldier wearing a blue coat and gray pants. Says this uniform would have worked very well, or would not have worked very well back in 1861. It would have gotten its wearer shot on both ends. So you're good students of history. You understand how ridiculous that is because it just screams, make a choice. Even spies would wear a consistent uniform. But as I think of that sort of silly soldier giving tours, I believe it's a perfect metaphor of a lot of modern Jesus followers. We love Jesus. If you're here on Mother's Day, you love Jesus, or you're doing a favor for somebody who loves Jesus. But we love Jesus as Christ followers. We believe he's the son of God. We believe he died for us. But we live with the other side as well. And we want to fit in with that side as well. We really would love to have an existence in which we can somehow please Jesus and please the world around us at the same time. And so we find ourselves constantly wearing parts of two uniforms. And the reality is, we really want to fit in more than we'd like to admit. And it's actually quite instinctive. Mark Batterson writes about this. There might be a few of you here are old enough to remember this. In August of 1948, a pioneering television producer named Alan Funt debuted a hidden camera reality TV show called Candid Camera. Candid Camera, Eric remembers. I'm surprised, Eric. Anyway, must have been reruns that you watched. The genius of the show is that it caught people in the act of being themselves. It produced a lot of laughs, but it also offered a fascinating look into the human psyche. In one episode titled Face uh, Face the Rear, an unsuspecting person boarded an elevator and naturally turned around to face the front of the elevator because that's what you do in an elevator. And that's when three actors entered the elevator and faced the rear. A hidden camera in the elevator captured the angst of the pranky. To turn or not to turn? Finally, a fourth actor entered the elevator and faced the rear as well. Without exception, the person facing the front would turn around and face the rear. They just couldn't be different. The social influence exerted by those facing the rear was too overwhelming for that person to remain the only one facing the front. 
How about this study? Football referees are unbiased, right? They would never be influenced by fans or football players, right? Well, according to a recent study, football refs are often swayed by their surroundings. Michael Lopez, a researcher and statistician at Skidmore College, led a study that referees are, uh, that said referees are much more likely to make calls that favor the team whose coaches and players are on the sideline closest to a potential penalty. Referees want to be loved. Lopez analyzed five years of NFL games, including 1,400 penalty calls, where the action happened close to one team's sideline or the other. One of the files he examined was whether referees called a late hit on a player. If one player is tackling another player, you're allowed to do it while the opposing player is within bounds, but not if he's out of bounds, can't hit him out of bounds. But the bodies are usually flying around into one another near a sideline. It's what's called a bang-bang play. It all happens so quickly the refs have to make a judgment call. Did he hit him out of bounds or not? Lopez measured how often these kinds of judgment calls go in favor of the team whose coaches are on the sideline closest to where the penalty, potential penalty is taking place. You've all seen it. You watch football or something like that. What are the coaches and players doing? They're doing this. You know what this means? Grab your flag and throw it. He found referees are much more likely to make calls that comply with what people nearest to them are demanding. In short, intimidation works. Pressure the refs, get in their face, they'll cave into social pressure. And it's not just football. Other studies talk about inherent home field advantage in sports. There's not supposed to be, but the reason there is a home field advantage is not the fans. It's referees and umpires trying to please the crowd. Study after study indicates this. Because they want to fit in. They're paid to be the unbiased part of a sport. And they want to fit in. Our movement, following Jesus, often puts us in conflict with the crowd. It puts us in conflict with the culture. It puts us in conflict with the norms of society. That's why Jesus said it would be the narrow road. We may be called upon to stand out in a fit-in world. And the question is, do we? And does God always really honor that? And that's what our story today is about. Now I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one near you. It's on page 628. Page 628 in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 1, probably familiar with this story. If not, I'm going to read a, it's a little bit longer text than normal, so stay with me. All right, Daniel chapter 1, page 628. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Some great boys' names there if you're pregnant. <clears throat> the Lord gave Jehoiakim, son of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. He brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So Babylon would be basically modern-day uh, Iraq. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel. So they've just taken them captive, including some of the royal family and the nobles. Youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them, him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. To Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. Why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? When you would make, uh, then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given some vegetables to eat, water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating at the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and, and out of uh, them, not all out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king, and that would be during the next reign, the Persian reign. Just three simple points from this passage. The choice for every God follower, stand out or fit in. So Daniel is a fascinating book of the Bible. It is full of key prophecies. It is very likely the most important Old Testament prophetic book in light of the future of the world. In fact, there are things in Daniel, we're gonna see later on in one of the chapters, that to the year, from about the sixth century BC, Daniel predicts to the year, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So if, if that's accurate, that tells you something about the true nature of God influencing history and how much the Old Testament is a reflection of the God who controls history. Incredible detail is included. The New Testament looks back on it consistently. In fact, Jesus himself, when he's walking the earth, chose his messianic or kingly title from this book when he refers to himself as the Son of Man. That comes from Daniel. But its history is also fascinating. And that's what I want to talk about today. Because it begins with the fall of Judah. Now, if this gets a little confusing, why do you have the nation of Judah? For those of you who aren't real familiar with the Old Testament, it's mostly about Israel and God's work with Israel. Israel was to be his nation. He was trying to elevate them on the world stage. If they obeyed him, he would. But they didn't. They disobeyed him. So then he allowed them to go into captivity. But before that happened, there was sort of a civil war in Israel. The 10 tribes to the north kept the name Israel. The two tribes to the south were called Judah. So you basically had two nations. But 100 years before this was written, the Assyrians came and they took over the 10 northern tribes. Now the two southern tribes, which I believe are Judah and I think Benjamin, are independent yet, and now they're under siege to the Babylonians. 
And in about 605 BC, and this is close enough to, you know, to the modern era where we, we know these dates based on other Old Testament and, and other documents we found from the ancient world. About 605 BC, Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians. Now, Babylon has a very astute political plan. Some current leaders of the world could learn from this. In other words, if you conquer a country, be gracious to its people. Take the best and bright. Now, this was Babylon's plan. They took the best and brightest of the population. They took the young nobles. They took, like, the king's family, the royals. They deported them to Babylon. They gave them every opportunity to rise in politics. They gave them opportunity in the larger conquering nation. They gave them the world. And they assumed if we do this with these young people, they will be loyal. They will not try to then have their nation in the future sort of take back their land, reconquer us. Every attempt was made to turn them into Babylon's own court officials. Three years of education, then service in the palace in the palace, and all along the king's daily buffet. I miss buffets, don't you? COVID wrecked my life when it came to food. It was nothing like a good Chinese buffet all across North America. Anyway, the king's buffet. But the first thing that they're going to do is they're going to get new names. So that happens. They come. This court official, Aspenes, takes over these young men. And, and they gave them new names. So Daniel was then Belteshazzar. Daniel meant my judge is El, or God. El is a name for God. So you see Daniel, Hananiah, uh, the end of that word means Yahweh. So if a, if a Jewish name end, or a Hebrew name ended with El, it's a reference to El, which is a name for God. If it ends with A-H, it's usually a reference to Yahweh, another name for God. Daniel meant my, my judge is El, or God. He was given a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. Hananiah meant Yahweh has shown grace. Now he's Shadrach, the command of Aku, a god, a pagan god. Mishael means who is what El is, who is what God is. Now he's Meshach, who is what Aku is. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. All these good Hebrew names. He's Abednego, servant of Nego. So they've landed in the center of a dominant world empire and they are receiving absolutely royal treatment. And if you think about this, their God has lost. The Old Testament God has lost. And this is huge. You need to think how they would think. We don't believe the Old Testament God lost. In fact, the writer of the book begins the book this way to make it clear that that's not the case. He says, the Lord, verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. He wants to make it very clear that Nebuchadnezzar didn't just win the war, that this was a part of God's plan in order to turn Israel back to God. But it looks in every pagan culture, in every ancient culture, if you lose a war, you're dependent upon your gods to win that war. So it looks like the God of the Old Testament is on the run. He's taken a big defeat. His people are being deported into a foreign land. He's been outdone by Babylon's deities. In fact, it says, king took vessels out of the house of God, put them in his own temple. Now, Israel's a theocracy. God is their warrior king. Victories were attributed to God. Therefore, losses are also his issue. Now, we know better 
that the covenant was broken and God was using this in Israel's history to, re, to regain their loyalty. But if you're a young Hebrew and you've been deported into Babylon, you're separated from your land by a thousand miles. It looks like Jehovah, Old Testament God, is losing. So they're in a foreign land. What do you do? What do you do? Should you be loyal to the values of a God that just got destroyed in battle, or should you just fit in? Go with the flow. When in Rome, do as the Rome, now it's a few centuries early, but when in Rome, at least eat the buffet. You're in the minority, don't rock the boat, just fit in. That was the situation for these young men. And then we have this incredible choice by Daniel. Second point, the right decision to live out God's values no matter the circumstance. This is the hardest thing any of us do right now in a secular world. The choice to live out the values of this book regardless of what the culture around us says. Daniel and his friends land on runway three of Saddam Hussein International Airport. They go through customs. They visit the U of B where they'll begin their education. University of Babylon, it's in the Hebrew. They get a palace tour. They get name tags, new names on their name tags. And then they're told about this all-inclusive meal plan. You're going to get palace food. You're going to get the king's buffet. What an incredible soft landing for these four political refugees slash captives. Could you ask for a better situation? You are being given royal treatment in a foreign land when your God just got wiped off the battlefield. But Daniel knew couldn't do it. Now, there could be a variety of reasons for this. Probably some of the food violated kosher rules. Nebuchadnezzar probably liked bacon or something like that. That's probably part of it. Possibly some of the animals weren't slaughtered in kosher fashion. There were ways that, that uh, Hebrew Jewish culture slaughtered animals. They had to be, the blood had to be drained. Some other cultures didn't do that. Animals weren't always killed the same way. That would violate kosher rules, couldn't eat it. But most likely, and what all scholars believe is, at a minimum, the meat and the wine was offered first to pagan gods before it entered the king's palace for food. And Daniel knew he, he couldn't eat it. He couldn't acknowledge those pagan gods. Three of his friends agreed. Now, what's absolutely, you know, a lot of scholars mention this, but I don't remember this from when I was a little kid in Sunday school. We tend to look at these four Jewish boys, or these four Hebrew boys, and think, you know, there's just four Hebrew boys in the middle of this great empire, and they alone are standing for the truth, and they're really alone. Probably not. I don't know anybody who believes there were only four Hebrew noble boys in this situation. There might have been hundreds of Hebrew young men in this training. There might have been dozens. We don't know. But it's very unlikely that there were only four so what's going on here is four young men are deciding to stand for their values, the values of their God, but we have absolutely no reason to believe they're the only four in the program. So they're around all the other Hebrew boys who are saying, you know, I'm just going to fit in. You know what? That bacon does smell good, actually, guys. You know, mom and dad aren't here. Let's just go along to get along. So Daniel spoke to the palace commander who oversaw the whole program. And he was hesitant to work with Daniel. Daniel's saying, we can't eat this food. 
Daniel wanted to go vegetarian. The commander didn't want to risk it because his head would be on the line. And so they made a deal. We'll do 10 days of a test diet to avoid this food and wine which was offered to idols. He said, you just give us veggies, you know, a little stir fry, it will be okay. And so they made that deal. Which brings us to our third point. No matter what the circumstance, God honors obedience. Now, I don't know how many of you heard of this, but if you're, if you're a person sort of in the Christian culture, you've probably heard of this, and, and I find this extremely annoying, but I'll try to be somewhat nice about this. Um, it is extremely unfortunate that a few not-so-discerning Christians turned this miracle situation into what's called the Daniel Fast. Anyone heard of the Daniel Fast? Okay, they're marketing it. You can get the Daniel Fast cookbook. It's a big thing. You can get it on Amazon. You can't make this stuff up, how people try to profit off the Bible. It's actually quite sad. But the Daniel Fast was not about Daniel eating veggies and being better because he went vegetarian. If you're a vegetarian, you're going to love this passage, but that's not what's going on here. God honored the obedience of these young men, and he honored it miraculously. Like they went vegetarian for 10 days and they gained weight. I think all of us know that's harder to do, to give up meat and gain weight. You might get healthier, but you're probably not going to gain weight. They gained weight on veggies. They gained abilities that were not just a little bit you know, sharper minds because they ate a little better. No, they gained abilities that were miraculous. Verse 17 is, for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. At the end of the days which the king had specified for, for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before the king and the king talked with them. And out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah as they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. In other words, God gave them powers and abilities and gifts they simply didn't have before because of the obedience and the way they honored him. It wasn't the diet. It was behavioral. It was because of their obedience. And then it was a miracle because God honored them. Even in a godless pagan culture, God, the true God, rewarded obedience. Even when it looked like God was on the retreat, he, he wasn't, and he rewarded this obedience. Even when those following him were only a few, only a few in a secular or pagan culture, God was still there. It didn't matter. He honored their obedience. Just a few apps this morning, standing out in a fit-in world, will you stand alone no matter what? This is the great challenge for all of us. And I think it, it gets harder the more the culture continues to move away from the values that we hold dear. One pastor writes, when I was in seminary, the wife of one of my classmates worked as a quality control inspector at a pharmaceutical company in order to support the family. One day, through mistaken procedures, a major order of syringes was contaminated and wouldn't pass inspection based on what she knew. When the wife of my friend reported the contamination to her boss, he quickly computed the costs of reproducing the order and made a cost-effective decision to ship it. He ordered her to sign the inspection clearance despite the contamination, and she refused. 
Because of government regulations, my friend's wife was the only one who could sign the clearance. The syringes did not ship that day. So the next day, a Friday, the wife got a visit from the company president. He said he would give her the weekend to think it over. But if the forms were not signed on Monday, her job would be in jeopardy. In fact, much more was in jeopardy. This inspection job was this couple's only means of support. The husband is going through seminary. His education and ministry future are also in jeopardy. All their hopes, dreams, and family plans of many years could be shattered as a result of a choice to be made over the next two days. For this young couple, all the abstract doctrinal instruction that they had been receiving about personal consecration and world transformation and credible witness boiled down to this one very real decision. Could they afford to remain undefiled from the contamination the world was urging them to approve. Sometimes, being a person of faith is incredibly lonely. For Daniel, it was four young men in a foreign country when it looked like God had lost and he was far away and what does it really matter if you just cave in just to fit in and get along? What could be so wrong with that? I mean, if God wanted in any other way, he should have won the war, right? Surrounded by false gods, surrounded, maybe more importantly, by other believers who decided just to fit in. So the question is, what are you and I made of when we're under pressure to fit in? Are you willing to stand alone no matter what? Do you believe what you believe enough to stand alone? Do you need the crowd? You know, there's an interesting study that was done, and this was a Canadian study. It was a study about young people who keep their faith, and it was called uh, Renegotiating Faith, I believe. Our elders had a look at that with uh, uh, Vanessa Cordopal a while back, and what was fascinating about that was the social dynamics of staying in faith, and I think we all understand this. You know, it's why uh, your children are most likely to be Christians if they're raised Christian. It's why a Muslim child is most likely to become a Muslim if raised in a Muslim family. There's a sociological aspect to religious devotion or conversion. There's a, a, it's a huge dynamic. But one of the things that we're all concerned about is whether our kids, once they hit a certain point in young adulthood, will stay with what we have taught them. And this renegotiating faith study was, was talking about that issue, young people who continue to move away from faith, and how do we keep that from happening? What was very interesting was that the young people who are most likely to stay with the faith, stay with Christianity, stay with what they've been taught as children, are those who, as they go out of the home and into college or university, uh, and then into young adulthood, those who maintain relationships with multiple adults who are Christ followers during that time. And they talk about four or five, six adults being in their lives, helping them to make life transitions. You know, when they get to a new city, because that's where the university is, you know, helping them to plug into a church, staying connected with them, almost in these sort of informal mentor relationships. Because it's hard to stand alone. It's incredibly hard to be alone where other people don't believe what you believe. What Daniel gives us in Daniel chapter 1 is peer pressure conformity 101. But still, will you stand alone no matter what? Second, do you believe God will bless your obedience? 
And here we need to take the long look, almost the eternal look. Daniel could have been executed in this situation. In fact, he's going to run into more problems as we get through the book, where you'll see he basically is put in an execution situation. He could have lost his scholarship. Instead, he obeyed God, and God literally performed a miracle. And as as Christ followers, one of the things we have to be pretty committed to is that God will reward obedience. But it may not be the way you're expecting. I think Daniel was willing to take the consequences no matter what they were. And sometimes when we do the right thing, I believe we're going to be rewarded. And I would like God to exact all of that justice in this life. I'd like him to fix the negative things. I'd like him to do the rewards in this life. That's not always the way it works. Often our reward's only going to be in heaven. There are people, there are more people who've died for their faith in the last 50 years than died in the first few centuries of Christianity. People die for what you and I freely believe. They die for it in other countries. And in those situations where God doesn't seem to come through, those people must believe that there will be a reward for standing for what they believe, but it might be in heaven, and heaven alone. It might not be in this world. We do the right thing because we believe there is a God in heaven. We believe he's the only true God. We believe he has objectively demonstrated it in history and in reality. We don't believe we're guessing. We don't believe faith is a leap. We believe it's historically accurate to believe in Jesus of Nazareth as son of God. His words are then his will for us. We're going to obey him regardless of the consequences. And we believe that he's going to honor that in this life or the next. Do you believe God will bless your obedience? And finally... Do you believe in a timeless, changeless, powerful God? We're going to get into this more in future weeks, but one of Daniel's themes is the sovereignty of God. And the word sovereignty simply means that God is in control of all things. God is in control of history. It doesn't make God guilty of history, but it means he has some measure of control over all things. But in this situation, I think we'd agree, the optics aren't good. It looks like God is on the run. It looks like God is in a slump. It looks like bad, God is having like a bad year and actually a bad century. Maybe Daniel and his buddies just should have combined elements of both religions. Jehovah plus Marduk and Nebo and Aku. I mean, they'd done it before. You know, they took Jehovah and combined him with the Baal cult and that's kind of what got him in trouble in the first place. But the reality is that would have been the simple thing to do. It's called syncretizing religions. And the Old Testament Hebrews were good at it. You have people next to you who believe something else. You incorporate their gods with your gods. You kind of mix them all together. And that sounds a lot like Western Christianity right now to me. You know? We're going to follow Jesus, but we're also going to see if we can't make Jesus into a new Jesus. And we're going to kind of take the new views of human sexuality and the the new views of humanity and the new views of identity. and, And, you know, we think because Jesus is all warm and fuzzy that he'd be okay with that. We're going to sort of reinterpret Jesus and make Jesus and the Bible kind of work together. We're going to undo what the authors intended when they wrote this book. We're going to sort of reinterpret it through a modern lens. And that's what's going on in many, many churches. In 1977, fish merchant Lee Lance traveled to China 
or to Chile, I'm sorry, Chile, and he discovered the toothfish, a species the locals deemed too oily to eat. 30 years and a name change later, do you know what the toothfish is called? The Chilean sea bass. And it became so popular when they stopped calling it the toothfish, became so popular in North American palates that it's almost on the verge of extinction. After Canadians developed an oil from the rapeseed plant, not a great thing to call a plant, the rapeseed plant, they still had to deal with the name. So in 1988, the FDA down south of the border approved a name change to canola oil, and all of a sudden it's incredibly popular. But you're not going to sell rapeseed oil. When the California Prune Board realized the words prune and laxative were inextricably linked, they switched wisely to dried plums in 2000. People bought it, and they bought the plums. And in a documented focus group, preferred the taste of dried plums to prunes. <laughs> Those are Americans. Canadians would not have been so easily fooled. And I actually agree with that statement. In the 1960s, Frida Kaplan, an American produce importer, changed the name of the Chinese gooseberry to the kiwi fruit after New Zealand's national bird, which is also round, brown, and furry. Popularity spiked. Even though the bony fish known as the dolphin fish was unrelated to the mammal of the same name, diners still balked at ordering it. So in the mid-1980s, restaurants started using its Hawaiian name, mahi-mahi, and all thoughts of eating flipper were forgotten. See, how we package things really matters. It really shapes people's views. And right now, there is an absolute onslaught of bad theology to repackage this book and our God into something that the culture can accept. And if we successfully do it, we haven't succeeded at anything. We've destroyed Christianity and ethics and God. The toothfish, the rapeseed plant, the prune, the Chinese gooseberry, and the dolphin fish may need some marketing help. Jesus of Nazareth does not. Our creator does not. The faith once delivered to the saints does not. Daniel believed that God was the same in Jerusalem and Babylon or wherever else he would be deported. He believed in a timeless, changeless, powerful God who would reward him for doing the right things. And as much as we want to cave into the culture and as much as I would love to stand up here and be loved by anybody to, who's 15 to 30 who's in the process of deconstructing our faith, Christianity is actually flourishing where people believe in this book, where they believe in it as intended by its authors without apology, where they believe in historic orthodoxy. That's where Christianity is flourishing around the world, not just maintaining itself, but exploding around the world. And when we try to reframe it and deconstruct it and repackage it, it ends up in churches that are dying because it's not our faith anymore.
we live and we walk in a movement that will always be against the current. It'll always be against a lot of people who follow the same God or say they do who just want to fit in. But it's the only faith that we can actually have confidence in because it's what was actually recorded and given to us. Daniel is an incredible example of somebody who stood alone, who believed that God would bless obedience, and who believed that God doesn't change, and he's worth following. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this example in your word of Daniel. It's just a group of incredible stories as we walk through this book of your sovereign control of the world and of history, but also of the way this young man and his friends stood for you against all odds and with incredible pressure to bow to the culture, to the world around them. And I pray that over the coming months as we look through these stories that it would, that it would encourage us to be faithful in our beliefs and to stand as well. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.